All right, guys. So it's fall again, and I know we're just a few months away from Creogs. Nick, I'm always looking for places to find good information to make sure that my residents have good information for their exams. And also, you know, I continue to refresh my knowledge of OBGYN. Well, yeah. I mean, you're already listening to what I'll say in my humble opinion is the best podcast in OBGYN, but we also (laughs) have some great other resources available through the resident core curriculum with our friends at the OBG project. Definitely. The nice thing about the OBG project is that not only do they have the resident core, they have an OBG L&D ebook and other things like the second trimester ultrasound atlas, all of which you can access for free as a resident if you sign up. Head over to our website, creagsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar, and again, get the OBG project and all their resources free for all four years of residency. Just, again, head over to our website, creagsovercoffee.com, and get signed up. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is... Creogs over coffee. All right. So, Faye, I know we're kind of deep in Creog season right now. Everybody out there is studying and trying to figure out what the right thing to study is. But let's maybe make a podcast study break today. I want to talk about delivering a baby on an airplane. What do you think about that? Yeah, that sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) So this will be a little bit more than just delivering babies on airplanes, um, but that's kind of what we're going to plug today. So what are our learning objectives? Yeah, so today we're going to discuss the safety of air travel in pregnancy. We will review the equipment, team members, and strategies for successfully managing an in-flight emergency. And then we're also going to become aware of the medical, legal, or other considerations for in-flight emergency care provided by volunteers. And, you know, depending on your perspective, the idea of delivering a baby on a plane might be really exciting or it's your worst nightmare. And today we're going to talk about what to think about in this scenario. And then we're also going to familiarize you with what you have available for those in-flight emergencies. So let's go ahead and get us started, Nick. What are some of the recommendations for air travel? Yeah, so actually there is an ACOG committee opinion about air travel during pregnancy. Um, And this was reaffirmed as recently as 2019. I feel like this is a super common question, so it's worthwhile to take a look at it, and it's a short and sweet read. The highlights, just to hear it, is that air travel is safe overall for pregnant folks. There's no increased risk of any adverse events following occasional air travel. Um, And most airlines will allow for air travel pretty restriction-free up until 36 weeks of gestation. Um, We'll link on our website to a different blog. Some of you may follow if you're into rewards travel stuff called the points guy. Um, But they had a recent post that actually compared airline policies in pregnancy if you're interested in looking at it kind of airline by airline. Most of this kind of boiled down to nothing before 36 weeks. And then if travel was necessary after 36 weeks, most airlines are going to require a doctor's note clearing the patient to fly. Um, If you're counseling patients who are traveling frequently, remind them that they need to get up and move about every so often to reduce their VTE risk. Compression stockings are not a bad idea either, um, and staying adequately hydrated. So again, up and moving once an hour, keep compression stockings on and 
take those water cups so the flight attendants come around. Um, and then just to highlight that we've talked about radiation on the show before, the risk of radiation overall for a fetus with just occasional air travelers is pretty minimal overall, um, so nothing that we would associate with fetal harm. All right, so again, let's talk about um, making a baby deliver on a plane. How common is it exactly? Like, is it something that might happen in my lifetime? Yeah, so it's definitely not very common, um, but it's hard to find estimates uh, because it is so rare. So one publication estimates a birth once in every 26 million air travels. Um, so definitely not common. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, you know, the next question then, of course, is if I'm on a one in 26 million flight, um, then, you know, what are we going to do? So first, we're going to plug in a paid app called AirRx that's written for physicians to know about what to do in those in-flight emergencies um, that are more common. And you can expect uh, what you can expect to have access to in a flight. So again, this is not just for obstetrics, but for all possible emergencies. There's information um, that is related to destination and origin, which are specific. So it's also very useful for international air travel. And we're mostly going to focus on the U.S. origin, so domestic flights. It's important to know that every flight has first aid kits. And for those who are under 50 passengers seats, there's a minimum of one kit. If there are 51 to 150 passengers, there's a minimum of two. And if there's 151 to 250 passengers, there's a minimum of three. So this is like a Boeing 737 size. If there's more than 251 passengers, then a minimum of four first aid kits usually are available. Now, the first aid kits on planes have some basic equipment, and these include things like antiseptic swabs, bandages, adhesive tape, and bandage scissors. But separately, there are also other emergency medicine kits, um, and these contain more advanced equipment, things like stethoscopes, blood pressure cuffs, you're going to get your airway supplies, PPE for yourself, IV tubing sets with at least 500 cc's of normal saline. Also things like Tylenol, Benadryl, and aspirin, as well as epinephrine, nitrogen, and atropine. You're also going to have access to an AED or an automatic external defibrillator. And there's going to be some basic instructions for the use of the drugs that are included in the kit. And then of course, you're also going to have access to things like oxygen and oxygen masks. All right. So those are kind of the basic equipment that we have, Nick, but who can we ask then to help us? Yeah, I think, you know, asking for help, certainly, or they're going to ask you for help. <laughs> Let me put it that way. And so, um, you know, it's good to keep in mind that you're not alone whenever you're being the kind responder to these emergencies. Um, you have a team um, and the crew is part of that team that is helping you out. So if you are a responder, share with the flight crew you know, obviously your identity, your name, so that way they know who you are, identify your level of training. Um, and if you have a medical ID of some sort, so you know those pocket-sized versions of your medical license or something, um, those are always helpful for the crew to be able to verify your skills, essentially. If someone has already volunteered an emergency also, don't be shy about volunteering yourself in those scenarios, too. You never know if you might be the one who actually has the good skills to assist, especially if you're an OB on a plane where a baby might be coming. Um, no, that would be really serendipitous versus, you no, know, maybe the radiology 
person who is trying to catch a baby on a plane, right? On board, at the very minimum, you're going to have the flight crew. Um, and the flight crew is trained to do these things, but sort of in terms of thinking about what you need, you should always ask them to bring an emergency medical kit and the first aid kit so that you have access to all of those materials. You should have at least one of the flight attendants be an assist to you throughout the event. And again, usually one of them is going to be assigned to you. And then in these scenarios, the crew will notify a ground medical support team that are contracted differently with each airline, um, but they are on the ground physician staff who are well-trained in a wide variety of scenarios, as well as the specific physiology of flight, if there's some concern with that going on. When you're talking to your ground medical crew, think of it as like, you know, being very, very explicit. You want to keep everything you say simple, be explicit about what your impression of what's going on is, and you want to say everything out loud. I think we say this to our brand new interns or junior residents a lot, right? You want to keep talking, keep everyone informed. That's the way that you get more time in a shoulder dystocia, right? Um, and so... On a plane, it's the same thing. You want to keep talking, keep everyone informed because your pilot and your crew, they're trying to help you, but they're not medically trained. Um, and then they're also having to weigh a decision about whether emergency landing is warranted, for instance. And that emergency landing is more than just a medical decision. Um, we often think like, oh, of course, if something happens and we'll just land the plane. But part of the decision making from the pilot's perspective is exactly airport choice, whether the plane is safe to land. For instance, the extra fuel associated with landing early might make the plane too heavy for a safe landing. Um, and then whether the resources are available in the particular airport or the area to assist the patient where the landing is considered. And so there are a lot of extra questions aside just from what's going on in terms of making that decision. And then in these days with COVID and such, we should just make mention if there's a concern for communicable disease, definitely make the flight crew aware for themselves and then to alert ground medical crew for transport considerations. And then also as just one final caveat to this, um, all conversations with medical ground crews are recorded. So if you're talking on them, be professional. Remember you're being recorded. Okay, so that's sort of the basics and the team that you have, Faye. Let's get into it. Let's do our assessment. Yeah, so don't forget, first of all, to get your vital signs. The vital signs are vital. You also want to, of course, do your basic assessment of getting your history and also your physical exam. Do what you do best as an obstetrician. Assess if that patient is in labor or not. You know, you are going to be limited if you are in the air, um, and that's just because you're not going to have access to a lot of those other things that you have, like your tachometer. So you will have your physical exam, and that's about it. But your goal is to promote safety of the patient and passengers with you um, during your professional assessment. And you'll have assistance from ground medical staff on what to do in specific scenarios regarding flight diversion. The pregnant folks also may have a lot of other things that can be occurring, so make sure to keep your differential diagnosis broad and reassure folks that if labor is not occurring, um, to let them know that. You may also be the best person to limit panic in assessing a pregnant patient on board a plane, regardless of the complaint, as we probably know from the ED. And if a delivery is occurring, make sure to get help. Um, you know you're going to need assistance just like you do in labor and delivery. And on a plane, you're going to need them even if they are not trained. And remember, be prescriptive and talk out loud. 
Think about how you would simulate some things like a shoulder dystocia. And now imagine that on a plane with no nurses, no backup, no anesthesia. You're really going to have to be directive in making sure that you get what you need to succeed. So just make sure that you are talking out loud and letting people know exactly what you want. No, 100%. And I mean, right Again, we mentioned at the top of the podcast that most airlines are going to make people have a doctor's note for traveling beyond 36 weeks. So actually, I think one of the first things that we need to think about in terms of crazy or undesirable scenarios in the air is preterm labor. Um, and with this, you might need to break out your inner MacGyver a little bit to make things work. Um, but let's go through preterm labor a little bit. Remember that you know, aside from just birth happening and all of the mechanics of delivery, you're now going to have a second patient in the baby. And with preemie babies, they're going to need breathing help and warmth as the two primary things that are going to help them succeed in the transition. In your emergency medical kit, you're going to have equipment available for positive pressure ventilation and oxygen that can be administered to babies. Um, in kind of the way of keeping them warm, you know, there's plenty of blankets and layers and things that are often readily available on planes for warmth, but then also just promoting skin to skin is also going to be a really big important thing here um, and can be an easy way to get skin to skin. For the super preemie kids, remember that we often at delivery will put them in like a plastic bag, right, is a way to promote warmth too. And that's one thing on planes that there's often several of actually, because <laughs> um, people have to carry their liquids in the little Ziploc bags, right? And so, you know, if you're expecting that, you can always ask around or have the flight attendants call out for a gallon Ziploc bag from volunteering passengers and use that as sort of a, a de facto no fetal catch um, or baby catch bag. <laughs> um, let's think next about another less great scenario, which is malpresentation, breach, or like a cord prolapse. Yeah. So, you know, this is definitely getting my heart pumping, Nick, about uh, those malpresentations and things like that. So if this happens, don't encourage pushing in these scenarios. Be clear with the ground crew that there's an emergent C-section that needs to occur and landing the plane needs to be a top consideration. Then get the patient on all fours for a cord prolapse with the chest down and the bottom up, and this will help the presenting parts stay off that cord. Now, if the baby is coming, go through your breach delivery maneuvers. And if you don't remember that, go and listen to our breach delivery episode and simulate breach deliveries while you can while you're in training. All right, Nick. So what about, you know, if the baby has already come, what happens if all of a sudden you're getting a lot of bleeding and you're in a postpartum hemorrhage situation? Totally. So this is another thing where you're kind of limited in what you can do here, right? So no, you're not going to have oxytocin. You're not going to have methogen. You're not going to have any of that stuff on a plane. You're limited to bimanual massage, doing an exam, holding pressure, and then using bandages or towels or whatever you can to kind of help hold that pressure, right? Um, you do have some crystalloid on a plane that you can give. And so it's one of those things, if you haven't put in an IV in a while and just need some practice, it's not a bad idea to try that just to make sure that you keep those skills up. Um, because you will have that 500 cc's at least of normal saline to be able to maintain circulating volume. But then remember too, that oxytocin can be gotten on a plane endogenously through nipple stimulation. Um, so 
start your patient breastfeeding if baby is ready to take to the breast or just doing nipple stim itself can help get that uterus contracting um, if you think that it's an acne issue. And one thing that we should mention with postpartum hemorrhage is actually considering delaying placental delivery until the plane is landed. When we manage placental delivery or the third stage of uh, labor in a hospital with oxytocin on board, we often think about 30 minutes as being sort of our timeline for an active management scenario. But we're not exactly actively managing in a plane because we don't have oxytocin, we don't have all of that stuff. And if you're not having any active bleeding, baby's delivered, mom is stable without oxytocin, and you can get the plane down in a reasonable amount of time, it may be prudent just to wait so that way you're not provoking bleeding by pulling out a placenta or avulsing a cord and then having bleeding happen like that, because um, that would be a much worse scenario to have. Um, all right, so Faye, I think I've definitely gotten my heart rate up thinking about this. Uh, <laughs> and I can imagine the listener out there who says like, why are you guys even spending time on this? I would just pull whatever hat I have on or my jacket and just like throw it up over my head and not pay attention to this. Aren't you worried about like medical legal issues that might result from assisting in something like this? Yeah, absolutely. So currently there are no relevant international laws for assisting in-flight medical emergencies. In the United States, the Aviational Medical Assistance Act, also known as the Good Samaritan Act or the Good Samaritan Law of 1998, states that an individual shall not be held liable for damages in any action brought in a federal or state court arising out of the acts or omissions of the individual in providing or attempting to provide assistance in the case of an in-flight medical emergency unless the individual, while rendering such assistance, is guilty of gross negligence or willful misconduct." The standard for malpractice here is basically significantly higher than it is in usual malpractice cases. And there's no example currently of a medical professional anywhere in the world who has been sued successfully for assisting an ill traveler. And actually, successful lawsuits have only occurred against airlines themselves. And the airlines actually are going to normally accept the liability associated with request for an in-flight assistance. The other thing to note is that there's no standard protocol for documentation of an in-flight event and assistance, but uh, the individual airlines, again, may have their own specific forms or policies that you may have to help fill out. So it is advisable for you to create a secure document of your own exam assessment and plan or get a photo of a completed airline documentation form for your own records in case you're asked to comment on the case later for any reason. So Nick, I guess you know the next question is, if you delivered a baby in the hospital, you usually get paid. So what about compensation in these cases? Sure. So kind of one of the caveats we should mention from the Good Samaritan Law Fay is that it really only applies to true Good Samaritan actions, so where no compensation is provided. So because of this, it's really not advisable when you're a volunteer in these scenarios to take any monetary compensation for assisting in an in-flight emergency. So these laws, though, as sort of one of the things you may hear a bit about, um, do not address any sort of non-monetary compensation. So you may hear about people getting you know, a frequent flyer mile bonus or a seat upgrade or a bottle of wine from the airline as a way to say thanks. Um, 
But just because those things are not addressed by the law doesn't mean that they may not be targeted. So when you talk to legal experts about this, most of them advise not accepting these gifts. Um, and we should say, I know you mentioned, Faye, correctly that there's no example of a medical professional anywhere in the world who's been sued successfully for assisting an ill traveler. But sued successfully is the key word there. Lawsuits have been brought against assisting physicians, even though you may be sort of helping in the goodness of your heart. Um, it is possible that a lawsuit could be brought and then it just really hasn't been tried to see like, oh, if I took those frequent flyer miles, does that make me invalid for Good Samaritan and now I might be held to a lower standard for malpractice. All right. So, Faye, I don't know if we need to summarize this episode at all. I think this was kind of like a quickish one and just sort of a fun one. Um, I hope people don't get too crazy about this, but I hope that you're happy to help for an in-flight emergency. Um, I wanted to end, though, with some like kind of final fun fact. And the question really is one that struck me before, is that if a baby is born in the air, where is its citizenship assigned? Yeah, so um, if a baby is born in flight, most of the time that child is given citizenship status of the parents. Um, and if they're in a U.S. airspace, the child can actually be given U.S. birthright citizenship. And sometimes citizenship is awarded based on the country of registration of the plane itself. Um, very interestingly, the most recent baby that we could find that was born on a plane was actually pretty recent in October of 2022. It was an American Airlines flight from New York City to the Dominican Republic. Wow. Um We'll see if any of us end up on a plane. And if you end up on a plane and catching a baby and you've listened to this podcast and it helped you at all, please, please let us know because we'd be so interested to find out. Um, I hope that this was helpful in some way, shape, or form. Well, I think that does it for today. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creags Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, go ahead and go onto your favorite podcatcher on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. Give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Instagram and Facebook at CreogsOverCoffee, or if you love the show, head over to patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. Send us some love and we'll send you some swag. You can find show notes for this show and all of our other episodes, as well as the Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. And finally, if you have a question for us, a correction, or an update to this episode or any of our prior episodes, or just want to say hello, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>